Hello there. Thanks for joining me. My name is Josh, and this is Dharma Punks New York. There's going to be a half-day workshop in person on Sunday, February 5th from 2 to 5 p.m. If you go to centeryoga.com, I believe that'll be there, and uh, you can sign up. If you'd like to support my work, everything I do is offered by donation only. As a Buddhist pastor, I follow the 2,500-year-old Buddhist practice of doing everything by donation. So the the PayPal is on the website. The Venmo is Dharma Punks with an X NYC and Patreon. So that's about it. Tonight, we're going to be talking about setting some radical Buddhist intentions for the new year, looking at what's called the uh, Buddhist precepts and refuges in the context of their um, uh, profound context. So I'd like to start by uh, bringing to mind uh, one of my uh, favorite speeches by David Foster Wallace, the American author who in 2005 gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College. And he started off his uh, exceedingly eloquent um portrayal of our self uh, individualistic society by bringing to mind a parable of two young fish swimming along in the ocean and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods and says morning boys how's the water And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then one of them looks at the other and goes, what the hell is water? Now, Wallace then says that the point of that story is that very often the most obvious, important realities that influence us the most are the ones that are hardest to see and acknowledge. Um, 500 years before the Buddha uh, was born, around 3,000 years ago, a rigid class system, or known as the caste system, was developed as a way of life in India, and it, believe it or not, persists uh, to this day. For some 3,000 years, individuals were rigidly separated by class rank, and each class could systemically mistreat or uh, act uh, with complete power over ranks that were lower. The highest rank were the Brahmin priests, who were priests who were kind of government ministers along with the army class of the Shastriyas which is where the Buddha, the caste that the Buddha was born into. And below those two most powerful classes were the merchants. And then beneath the merchants were the workers, the shudra. But then below the workers were a huge class of what were called um, untouchables, In the time of the Buddha, they were known as Chandala, but today I believe they're known as Dalits. And untouchables were not only shunned by everyone, relegated to the lowest jobs, they were liable to be paraded naked, beaten naked publicly. They could be beaten and raped with impunity by the classes above them. And there was no zero class mobility. You born and died into whatever caste your parents were in. And this worldview that uh, people's worth was determined well before their birth, 
and that some people could be completely discarded as worthless was so deeply embedded in Hindu doctrines and in the culture of the time, in every interaction, that its prevalent anti-humanist effects couldn't be seen or understood. It seemed like there was no alternative, that that was just the way things were. Nothing else was, no alternative was conceivable. You were born into this rigid caste system where uh, so many lives were utterly discarded. And there was nothing that, there. it was seen as completely natural. So the Buddha was not revolutionary due to his focus on meditation. That is a, uh, a rather modern uh, misinterpretation or frankly, it's a distortion. The Buddha was revolutionary because he saw the immor immorality of the caste system and created a, a radically egalitarian collective, what's called a sangha, where all the all people could would be tre treated as equals. Women and untouchables could take on every role. And it, you know, there was never a place before the Buddha where women could take an active role in teaching the uh, sutras. And there was never any possibility of the untouchables before the Buddha taking part in a collective endeavor. But the Buddha went further and he said that the untouchables not only were welcome, but that they were had every single right were to be treated in the exact same way as the uh, Buddhist practitioners who came from uh, the merchant, the workers, or the the Brahmin castes. And this was so revolutionary for his time that not only did huge amounts of his followers uh, uh, essentially uh, refused to take to take part in the Sangha because it was so upsetting that they would have to practice with the untouchables. But also uh, they took it up with King Pasanetti and said, this is absolutely outrageous. The Buddha has to be stopped. He's invited untouchables into the Sangha. He's making them to be treated as equals. And he, the Buddha was summoned and made his case and was allowed to continue having the Sangha as the first radical egalitarian system that was codified in uh, that at least we have a record of. He taught the, that we're not separate individuals, but interrelated by universal attributes that join all of us together that our evolutionary wiring instills an impulse to alleviate stress by consuming short-term pleasures, the alcohol, drugs, foods, shopping, sex, work, all of these hijacked our dopamine reward systems, which give us short-term boosts of pleasure, and then the dopamine recedes very quickly and then there's a mirrored symmetrical decline and then we're right back where we started were so we're ultimately left with disappointment and frustration with our addictions what the Buddha, the buddha called dukkha viparinama for the buddha to achieve inner peace was not about accumulating status rising above others accumulating or consuming objects it was seen through the delusion that we're isolated unique individuals entirely and focusing on that which connects us and in emphasizing connection uh, through what he called kalyanamita wise spiritual friends and sangha a buddhist community that would actually, I, there was no word for it at the time, but actually we now know today that community bonds actually upregulate serotonin, and serotonin doesn't dissipate like 
dopamine. It lingers. It creates feelings of uh, mood regulation, well-being. So it doesn't give us the short-term pleasure and boost of uh, shopping or sex or drugs or food or, you know, whatever or whatever else uh, triggers dopamine, but it actually creates a sense of sustainable well-being. To join a sangha was to work collectively, share resources, live by donations, as I do, and find safety amongst others by following five precepts, which is refraining from killing, from stealing from our fellows and from other humans from and beings from uh, uh, harmful speech, causing harm through sexual misconduct and causing harm through intoxication. And at the end of tonight's meditation, I'm going to, and you each can decide whether you want to join or not, I'm going to lead the refuges. So if you want to take them, you can. Um, and also all members of the Sangha, instead of trying to regulate suffering and stress and discomfort and negative emotional states by consuming dead objects, you know, short-term pleasures, um, sought a sense of well-being and uh, meaning and purpose in life through three what we call refuges. The first is bearing in mind the Buddha or the example of any being that's achieved enlightenment, not by consuming, but by finding and cultivating peace within, paying attention to one's internal states with kindness and compassion, as well as uh, bonding with others. The second is bearing in mind the, the Dharma, the teaching that none of our Stress and suffering is personal. We're all subject to the same or similar uh, stressors of old age, sickness, loss, death. Some of us, even many of us also have to live with uh, ingrained cultural biases on top of all that. And But one thing also unites us is that craving short-term pleasures doesn't alleviate our distress. It actually makes our distress worse. And the third refuge is bearing in mind the Sangha, that human beings need the support of a community or wise spiritual friends. If we are to awake from our suffering, and we need inspiration from others, encouragement to stay on a spiritual path. Our brains are social brains, and emotional isolation is the greatest pain of all. So the Buddha, in other words, came up with a program for living that was, as he said, against the stream. He compared it to a bowl that would float up against the, the current. It was so different from the world uh, around him. And his the Sangha and the Buddhist path was a way to completely uh, see through the delusion that the castes, the brutal caste system, which was so uh, manipulative and so biased and so uh, deeply, deeply, uh, unfair was not natural, and that there was actually a natural way of being that was successful. Now, today, our dominant mode of being is every bit as distorted as the ancient caste system of India. From childhood onwards, our socialization and peer groups, educational institutes, culture, workplaces, and so on and so forth, subtly and overtly condition us to not rely on each other to meet our needs, but to consume peace of mind. In hyper-capitalism, I don't view us in capitalism anymore. Capitalism is just a system where the most valuable assets are owned by a few private individuals. But hyper-capitalism is where every endeavor of human life 
is treated like a business and all that's essential to our well-being our food shelter our health care the stories that help us make sense of our lives all the the soothing distractions even the emotional support and guidance we need has a monetary value that has to be purchased in a quid pro quo exchange in other words very little in our society is provided freely and we de-emphasize connecting with others as a kind of thing where we do in the free time we have between work and uh, sleep. If you weren't born with capital and didn't find a way to get a hold of enough wealth, well, then in our culture, you are very much out of luck. As so many tens of millions of Americans are via institutions as i mentioned schools uh, workplaces even courts news music movies tv shows ads these values are spread and instilled in us that having wealth is sexy and good that it allows you to attain which actually should be provided freely things like clothes health care medicine education um uh the right to work if we you know whatever these so what the buddha called requisites that should be provided freely are not in our culture so when we're stressed when we're anxious when we're lonely when we're sad we're no longer enticed to seek gathering places to disclose our internal states for support from friends and to we're encouraged to numb our stress via isolating endeavors that just trigger dopamine netflix scrolling on uh tinder or other related sites bumble uh, grinder hinge i can't remember all the names of them uh food porn shopping on amazon posting on instagram down the row we're all enticed by this culture to try to mitigate our stress not by collectively connecting the things of values as i noted um the land the resources the art are owned by either businesses or wealthy a few wealthy individuals rather than shared by all belonging to nobody and we're told that that would be bad and that capitalism is all there is it's but the truth is capitalism though the form it's taken today is exceedingly historically maladaptive and not only that but exceedingly rare over the course of human history now we've of course been misinformed uh the economist adam smith created a literally a false narrative that attempted to make capitalism seem both natural and inevitable he basically wrote many many times in his famous works that before capitalism uh the the system that human beings relied on to manage culture was bartering in essence that if i needed medicine that you possessed you wouldn't just give it to me oh no according to adam smith you would trade the medicine by me giving you an axe or something of equivalent value because it was inconceivable to adam smith and to other economists of the time that there could possibly have been another system so they simply projected capitalist values onto our ancestors the problem is is that it didn't it didn't happen it's made up entirely there was never been a culture that has had a system of barter anthropologists like david graber caroline humphrey marcel mouse and jeffrey ingram and so many others have shown that indigenous communities by and large used gifting 
uh, cultures. They would stockpile goods, for example, in longhouses, and female councils would allocate the goods. Other communities had gift economies where I would say I needed medicine, and if you had it, guess what? You would offer it to me. And then if you needed later on an axe, I would lend you or give you the axe that I had been using. So capitalism is not inevitable. It's never been inevitable. It's a period of time that has basically pitted us, us in competition with each other for ever fleeting resources. And it's also completely unsustainable as a social organization. If the world's economy and population continue to grow at its current rate, according to the most recent projection by Yale University, our natural resources will begin to run out in 20 years from now. No, not 50. No, not 100. 20 years from now, starting with food and drinkable water, we are going to run out, start running out of our resources. And yet we're assured that capitalism is the best possible solution where we are now consuming 300% more resources than we did 40 plus years ago. And in America, we are consuming twice the amount of natural resources that people in Europe do, and people in Europe are, are consuming five times the amount of resources on average that people in non-industrial nations consume. And even though we're assured that this system of hypercapitalism is the best possible system without any alternative, if we look around, what do we see? Well, I don't know about you, but I see a, um, a veritable tsunami of substance abuse, gun and domestic violence, racial tension, universal feelings of isolation and chronic stress, not to mention the uh, also the widespread uh, amounts of mental illness. Last I checked, we are now almost at a point where one out of two people are diagnosed with a mental illness in this country. So we're being gaslighted. Since the Gallup Worldwide Happiness Survey started in 2006, which was some 16 years ago, guess what? Happiness has been trending downward. Each year we're setting new records in levels of stress, worry, and sadness. And according to Carol Graham, Gallup's senior scientist, the reason is clearly our lack of connection we have with others that physical interaction with others has declined. So when consuming pleasure isn't enough, seeking meaningful connection has been hijacked these days by what uh, is often referred to as a rise of credentialism. Credentialism is we are no longer encouraged to seek emotional support through uh, speaking with village elders, with people who've got life experience, with people who have, um, who've uh, essentially communities of people. We are actually told that take it to a therapist. In other words, uh, spend $200 an hour to speak with somebody for 45 minutes and assume that that will be enough to meet all of our emotional needs. And it's kind of interesting for me personally, when uh, in two, after 9-11 and 2001, when I decided that uh, I could no longer work in the ad industry where I was making a very good living, but feeling ultimately completely empty. And I decided that I wanted to pursue that which was most meaningful, which for me, which was doing service for others. And I went about 
I did have to go about getting the credentials to be a Buddhist pastor. But then unlike the bulk of my peers, I decided to not charge anything for what I would do, just to make it freely available to all and live like the Buddha did entirely by donation. And when people meet with me for counseling, no matter how many times I try to explain that, they look confused because it's run so counter to the world that they live in where nothing of value is provided freely simply by just being offered. So capitalism gives us life as an individual pursuit, but the problem is we're an emotionally co-regulating species. We evolved in communities and we develop, develop nervous systems that can only meaningfully downregulate stress and depression and anxiety through sustained eye contact, proximity, touch, empathetic facial expressions from a group of people. The core regions, as shown by Lieberman and so many others, of the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex creates emotional pain and lower serotonin the less interpersonal interactions we have with others. Cochiopo and Holt, Julia Holt-Lundstedt, I believe that was her name, Holt-Lundstedt, uh, that the experience of loneliness in any five-year period is a uh, uh, continual experience of loneliness uh, in, in durations is shown to be associated with a 50% increased likelihood of death. It's equivalent to the risk of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It exceeds the risk of heavy alcohol consumption, and it far exceeds the risk of obesity and physical activity combined. It's deadly. The separation that pulls us apart and disinclines us to connect with each other starts in middle schools where we bombard our students with a constant array of standardized testing and assessment scores that will set them apart and introduce them to this idea of pass fail sink or swim way of life we evaluate and assign children skills that are marketable and not marketable for some math or English, looks, body, humor, confidence, athletic prowess. And over time, by the time we reach high school and college, it becomes second nature to assess ourselves in terms of what are the most marketable or likable aspects of myself that others will approve of and what are the parts that I better conceal from others. In a quid pro quo world where no one inherently deserves attention, we become increasingly awkward when it comes time to actually connect and disclose our loneliness, our anxiety, our depression, our anger our emptiness, our, ling our languishing, whatever we're feeling, because we're so trained to assess ourselves in terms of what others will like and what others won't like. And we are also trained to conceal. Life becomes a kind of a game of social uh, performance. Um, unfortunately, that which we conceal from others over time begins to define us. It's not the skills that we show and are happy to tell others about. It's the parts of self that we believe to be unlovable or unmarketable that we conceal that keep us not only isolated, but make us feel terminally unique and insecure. So when I meet with people in counseling, very often they're completely don't feel that it's their skills or their resilience that are really truly themselves, but it's that chronic feeling of anxiety or loneliness or yearning for connection that they be, they most identify with. 
And unfortunately, in our culture, because there's such a de-emphasis placed upon community and building up a group of wise spiritual friends, that we place a huge emphasis upon finding one significant other who will meet all of our needs, which makes our relationships completely overburdened. And the Buddha's Sangha connecting with others is clearly the path of meeting human needs for bonding peer relations. As the evolutionary psychologist Robin Dunbar showed, um, having a significant other was never the way that people regulated their emotions. They always had a group of friends who's, you know, in tribal cultures and in clans, a group of people you grew up with that would know everything about our life. The uh, And then finally, to add insult to injury, a hypercapitalist narrative tells us that mental illness is not caused by this completely arbitrary system. It tells us that it's caused by an individual's chemical issues rather than the outcome of a pervasively uh, disconnecting, isolating system. And it assigns responsibility to each individual who's suffering to resolve their issues alone. The mental health plague in our society demonstrates that instead of this being a system that works, this system is in fact cruel and dysfunctional. We in the US are two to three times more likely to be diagnosed with depression, anxiety, or other mental health conditions than people who live in, in countries like the Netherlands, France, and Germany, where at least education, healthcare is provided and where there are some social safety nets. The more we deprive people of their basic needs, the more stress, anxiety, suffering, and to pretend that it's simply the individual's problem and not the society's problem is to engage in the worst kind of gaslighting, in my opinion. Alas, hypercapitalism is so powerful and so capable of assimilating opposition into itself that it's highly difficult to visualize in the, uh, at least in my lifetime, uh, it having a meaningful transition to a more just system. Even the most revered iconic figures associated with um, anti-capitalist thought like Sartre and Chomsky and Nina Simone and Michel Foucault and Kurt Cobain and Charlie Chaplin and Jean-Luc Godard and you name it, their ideas aren't what capitalism does brilliantly is it doesn't banish the ideas. No, it actually uh, assimilates it, waters it down and then delivers it back to us for profit. So now uh, we literally can purchase the best hits of um, Michel Foucault uh, on, in a bookstore. But the problem is, is if we can consume or if we are asked to acquire these great revolutionary thinkers, then it gives us the illusion that capitalism is... Uh, fairer than it actually is because it doesn't outright banish the thinkers. It simply gobbles it up and feeds it back to us. We feel good and we feel even maybe edgy that we can buy a book by um, James Baldwin, but uh, in essence, we're not doing anything to confront the system. And most tragically for me personally, 2,500 years after the Buddha lived, Buddhism today is now presented in this completely business-friendly version where um, people are encouraged to believe that the Buddha simply taught when you're feeling stressed, 
meditate alone in isolation. Never what he talked about. It was always central to the Buddha's Dharma that connection, Kalyanamita, when he was asked if connection and Sangha were half of the path, he said, never say that. It's the entirety of the path. So uh, it's funny, I was asked to give a talk at a huge tech company. And I thought most of the time I've said no to those, but once I said, sure, I'll go, I'll give a talk. And instead of giving a talk on what they thought I would, which would be to teach meditation, I gave a long talk about work-life ratios and organizing together and finding meaningful connection and de-emphasizing the role of being computer programmers and how it wasn't anything that was gonna create a meaning for life. And while I wasn't invited back, at least I felt very good about that one time I got to uh, speak there. Um, anyway, capitalism is not going to be allowed to fail. <laughs> After the crisis of overproduction of goods that, stemming from the development of the assembly line that led to the Great Depression in the 1930s, did capitalism stop overproducing goods and start a socialist system of helping people? No. <laughs> I mean, they did, they did start the social security program, but what happened was an entirely new industry called advertising was developed to manufacture a desire for the useless goods that were being produced. And in 2008, when bad investments in the housing market took down, like, what was it, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, and was about to claim the very bulwark of a huge capitalist enterprise, AIG, Goldman Sachs, Merrill Lynch, the government stepped in, and instead of giving money to the people who very often lost money or who were unemployed, gave these financial institutions $750 billion to erase their debts. So hypercapitalism not only is programmed in to not be allowed to fail, but it's also got hegemonic dominance, a capacity to normalize itself via everything from history to news to culture and so on. So the revolution is pretty far off, my friends. And uh, resisting the most egregious acts of capitalism via protest and direct action, which I've happily been a part of since in my 20s and continue as recently as uh, the first and most uh, most recent Black Lives Matters uh, marches and marches for uh, reproductive rights. While these activities do call attention to gross injustice, but the positive change globally is going to be agonizingly gradual. But while hypercapitalism is too large, too complex, too ingrained, we can find peace of mind and purpose by joining any and supporting any inclusive communities or friendship circles where we connect free of monetary demands, where we disclose our burdens, where we support and provide resources for each other. In the I was lucky when I was a young guy uh, around 20 and was living in the Lower East Side. I got to live in these squats, these houses that were run by a collective and they practiced what was called um, DIY ethics, do it yourself. And living and squatting in those housing uh, you'd share skills. People would volunteer to cook me vegan meals for others. Oh, at the time it wasn't vegan. It was just vegetarian. Um, people would volunteer for house duties. Nobody would ask me to do very much because I was kind of lame at the time. <laughs> it was kind of drunk. And, uh, but I did get a lot from that experience. 
Um, people would organize and promote gatherings from music to bands, you know, poetry, art. And people would fundraise for charities like animal welfare and so on and so forth. So in my lifetime, I've seen it work. And when during the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, events of 2020, it was really moving to go down to uh, City Hall and see this space that had been claimed by the people where everything was provided free of charge, much like it was back when uh, in 2011 at Zuccotti Park, where you walk around and people would be offering food for free and support for free. And while these events might be uh, limited or or just outcroppings of times of gross injustice, but there are ways we can bond together meaningfully and seek connection in ways that we support each other, whether it's at any local spiritual community or simply connecting with and organizing friends together or group meets or whatever. It's less important that it be in any way underneath the umbrella of the of Buddhism. It, it doesn't matter to me if we do it in any other context, whether 12-step or Unitarian or any, any collective where people get together and bond. So anyway, I hope you'll join me in the meditation at the end of which I'm going to lead the practice of taking the precepts of not harming others and taking the refuge of at least as much as we can seeking alternatives to regulating stress not by consuming not by purchasing or seeking status over others not by disconnecting in isolation but actually by putting the effort to build up both uh a community or returning to our friendships or reaching out to where friendship can be found. And uh, also to using our meditation as a way to cultivate uh, an uh, inner peace so that we don't have to rely on consuming the world's resources. You know, every act of consuming even though we might not realize it, in, involves unseen harm to others. For every T-shirt, sneaker, piece of uh, food we eat, somebody somewhere was being paid too little to bring those goods to us. So the more we diminish our consumption, the more we can bring our core values in line with our practices. So anyway, that's tonight's talk. I hope there was something worth listening to in it. And uh, now what we're going to do is meditate together. So find a really comfortable seated position. And closing your eyes and try not to look at the screen. Just look away. You can even have it so that, you know, you're just completely in any position where you feel most comfortable. You can be lying down or sitting on a couch. The most important is that you find a position where you are most comfortable. If your body feels comfortable, then... So much of the stress that drives us to consume is addressed. It's, in, it's interesting how very often when I meet with people who are caught up in addiction and addictive behaviors, how little um, time is taken to just find a way to sit and be 
in the most comfortable position for the body. And so bringing your attention into the body, it's helpful for me to close my eyes when I'm doing this. And then see, one, if you can find a, an area of your body that feels really comfortable where your awareness and attention can land. whether it's in behind your eyes or the palms of your hands or in your heart center or in your belly. Just find some area of your body that feels like the energy has slowed down and there's not any needless tension or tightness or contraction. And just allow your attention to land there. And every time there's something in the world around you or any thoughts that want to pull you up and out of the top of your head, just bring your attention back in and down into the body to that resting space. And now there's some area of your body that feels antsy, that wants to move, that doesn't feel it's okay for you to rest, that feels there's always something to do that needs to be taken care of before self-care. If there's any part of your body that holds all of the stress and momentum from today and the days leading up to this moment, just see if you can breathe into that area, especially around the tension and soften. Maybe just dropping soothing phrases like, it's okay, relax, let go.
So just find the area of your body where it's most comfortable to be aware of the inhalation and the exhalation, the entire process of breathing that's keeping us alive. For some, it might be just being aware of the sensation of air entering the tips of the nose. I prefer feeling energy moving up from my belly to my chest in the inhalation and then the exhalation, the energy moving back down. There's no right place to observe yourself breathing, but the most important concern to bear in mind is as the Buddha taught in the Anapanasati, the mindfulness of breathing is just to use breathing in a way that relaxes the body. So most of the time that means full inhalations and very long exhales where the exhale is much longer than the inhalation. One way to do this is to keep slowly releasing air even long after it feels like you've run out of air to release. Very often we'll find actually that there's more we can release. And with each exhalation, slowly relieving any tightness in the muscles of the face, you can, with an inhalation, lay, raise the shoulders, and then with the exhalation, drop the shoulders back and down, opening up the chest. And when you breathe in, feel the energy moving into the body. But when you breathe out, just use that release as a way to encourage letting go letting go of any need to do anything, to go anywhere, to be anything, to achieve anything, to prove ourselves. Releasing, to the pos releasing into the possibility that we are deserving of love and happiness without doing anything. And so we'll just, for a little while, just practice returning to the breath. Each time the mind slips away, adding no judgment or no frustration, it's all okay. Rather, every time you notice that you've slipped away, feel really good. In that moment, you've achieved awakening. You've awoken from the, the daydream of thoughts, memories, fantasies, and you've awoken up into your body, into life as it is. So feel good every time you realize that you've wandered away. You're practicing for your own form of enlightenment.
So it's traditional New Year's, each New Year's for Buddhists to take once again the uh, refuges and the precepts. And you can take it without being a Buddhist. And you can uh, hold them however is most meaningful for you. The first refuge is to take refuge in the example of the Buddha. And what that means is to reflect that there have been throughout time human beings without access to any external resources other than wise friends who have achieved awakening and enlightenment. So with your eyes closed, visualize any, if you can visualize any awakened figure, whatever that, or whoever that brings to mind, it could be an image you conjure of a Buddha. It could be a figure James Baldwin, Nina Simone, John Coltrane, whoever for you is that enlightened being, and just whisper to yourself, I take refuge in the Buddha, and that Buddha is your own personal Buddha. Any being that has shown you that awakening is possible, that people can find happiness free from addiction, can find true meaning and value through connecting, being caring, kind, supportive, creative, being truthful. And the second refuge is the Dharma, the uh, remembrance that we're not alone, that in life we are united, not just in having to face old age, sickness, loss, death, difficulties not getting what we want, being stuck at times with people who are aggressive and difficult. But all humans know what it means to suffer and that all of us are united in that trying to purchase our way out isn't a solution. It just leaves us lonelier, more isolated, and disappointed. But that there is a way out, a way to reduce, that is, the suffering associated with these inevitable trials of life. So I take refuge in the Dharma, which means I take refuge in the real truth that there is a way to find peace of mind. And then the third refuge is in community or friendships. Bring to mind people who have either been supportive and kind or people who have evinced for you those qualities that you would seek in friendship. Remembering that we are a social species and we thrive in connection. I take refuge in the Sangha. I take refuge in the community.
And finally, knowing how our lives are interconnected, interconnected and how much we are meant to coexist with each other to find a better way to go about life than the one that we've been handed. We can take the five precepts. I undertake the commitment to protect life. I undertake the commitment to take only what is offered. I undertake the commitment to not cause harm in my sexual conduct. To not cause harm in my sexual conduct. I undertake the commitment to speak truthfully and in ways that minimize harm. And finally, I undertake the commitment to not cause harm through intoxication. That doesn't mean for those who can and do like to drink or consume substances just to do it in an amount that doesn't mean we're causing harm to ourselves or to others. So I undertake the commitment to not cause harm, the intoxication. So I thank you for your practice and your willingness to listen to tonight's reflections.